Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. Guys, I am so excited to announce the first ever, the inaugural, you have permission in-person gathering. It's coming in Seattle, Saturday, March 25th. We would have been doing this a lot sooner if not for COVID. I'm excited to finally get this going. There will be two or three speaker sessions, probably with friends of the pod, former guests, and there will be breakout workshops, a Q&A session, or maybe both, and we'll do a live recording of a You Have Permission episode. The event is going to include lunch, coffee, and snacks. We're going to be in the Ballard neighborhood of Seattle, so that means when we're all wrapped up for the day, we're going out to the local breweries for an unofficial after party or maybe a set of after parties at a few different locations. I'm so excited to hang in person with people. We've got early bird tickets available right now for the event. The link is in the show notes. We're starting here in Seattle. Obviously, that makes the most sense to do for the first event. But if this goes well, I'd love to see these going uh, beyond the Pacific Northwest. All right, check that out. And now we'll get into the episode. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. My guest today, Meredith Ann Miller, is a pastor and parent. 
With over 20 years' experience in children's ministry and curriculum, she was the curriculum director at Willow Creek in Chicago for a while and redid that curriculum to be based on uh, more recent evidence around children, faith formation, and child development. She's also been involved with the Fuller Youth Institute. She knows her stuff, and I'm so excited for you guys to hear this conversation. Meredith Miller, I have been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. This summer, I was putting the pieces together for like a parenting after evangelicalism project that I started and kind of shelved for the time being, hopefully will come to more fruition later. And even though that's on the back burner, I decided in the meantime to interview you, interview Becca McNeil, which came out in October, the Love and Perfectionism and Raising Kids episode. There'll be a link in the show notes. That's a long preamble to say, I'm very excited to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is fun. I'm really excited to be talking again. One thing I love about both of your approaches is that you're pretty steeped in like careful empirical research whenever possible. And sometimes when I see parenting advice from former evangelicals, it can seem to sometimes be primarily fueled by ideological commitments, that is the new ideological commitments we have as opposed to the old ones we were raised with, or sometimes it's just like reactions to the ideological commitments we were raised with. And I sort of get immediately skeptical that we can be confident if we do that, that we're not just swinging a pendulum the opposite way and the law of unintended consequences means that we will just cause other harm for our kids that we're not thinking of. It seems to me that grounding the work in some sort of empirical research is the best or a good way to sort of avoid the pendulum swing and the law of unintended consequences. Do you agree? I do. And I think that it's allowing us to at least try to go towards something on purpose as opposed mm. to only be reacting against something. And I think that this is a space, kids and faith, that there's some good research and there's like no magic formula. And therefore it becomes all the more helpful when you're like, well, here's what we do have. So let's see what that might mean. I think there's a, some really good like critical thinking and intentionality that sort of comes when you put that together versus I think the place that evangelical parenting comes from makes a lot of promises, right? There's a lot of guarantees yes. got built in there. Something like a James Dobson focus on the family approach which if people aren't familiar with that, bless you. Uh, <laughs> uh, very, it, what would you say? That that was sort of the most formative and widespread sort of Christian parenting curriculum in the 90s and aughts or 80s or what? Probably, I mean, at least in certain sectors um, yeah. of white evangelicalism, especially. He was certainly wildly popular for being an early adopter to like certain media technology that was, you know, there at the time and having a huge publishing empire sort of created a sense that this was the most trustworthy voice because it was simply the most widespread, I think. So I think that does contribute. Yeah. The first takeaway is that's not how this stuff works. There's more discernment, there's more gray area, but nonetheless, research can point us to some principles that we can hold as most likely to be true and maybe most crucial to like basic childhood development type stuff. And then as we get further out from that center, it's more, well, what's your kid like and what, yeah. what's important to you and what's important to your family. And then you can, is, is that 
about right? Absolutely. And I think that one of the things that Dobson and company did that current research is helping address is they sort of threw shade at research that was not somehow overtly Christian. I don't even totally know what that means, right? But they made assumptions about what we know about psychology and such that limited what they would draw from. Whereas I think now when you see better research on kids and faith, it assumes that we also trust what psychologists say about children in other ways, that it would be companions to other things we're learning about kids' holistic growth. Whereas there was a movement of real skepticism that marked what they called research at the time, which was sort of their own thing because they would not listen to what others were saying about what what's good for kids. And so that has an impact too on how, how these circles are going now. Speaking of that evidence, so what research out there has most informed your work, uh, you know, helping parents talk to kids about faith and, and sort of raising children in some sort of Christian environment? There are probably four big ones that I have found were really big markers, I would say. So the first was that when I was in seminary in 2007, I joined the research team of the Fuller Youth Institute while they were just about a year into what became the Sticky Faith Project. This is Fuller Seminary in Pasadena. So what would you say the basic takeaways were of that Sticky Faith Project through the Fuller Youth Institute? A young person needs to be in relationship with folks older and younger than themselves in meaningful ways over time, consistent, meaningful relationship beyond a nuclear family. A young person who's part of a faith community will fare better in their faith journey when their role in that faith community is active participant and contributor, as opposed to simply audience member or shuffled to the side so the grownups can get on with things. Hmm. And a young person's faith will be served well when they are given space for their questions and doubts, as opposed to being told what all the answers will be. You know, each of these research initiatives will have different goals, right? So Mm -hmm. the Fuller initiative is like, we are assuming that we want young people with a serious faith in God. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some listeners are like, I don't know that I want that for my kid. Actually, that's one of the things I'm unsure about. But I am interested in the research around, like, what makes healthy kids. And, you know, maybe my partner and I will discern sort of what of that, you know, aligns with our values or whatever. But so for the fuller folks, if you want a sticky faith, basically, a faith that sticks around for your kids, these are kind of the takeaways. And what's notable about the takeaways is they were not things like these kids have learned how to read their Bible X number of times a week. Yeah. These kids have gone on X number of specific camp or retreat experiences. Interesting. It wasn't based on specific religiosity. It was about a culture. And generally speaking, it pointed to what is unsurprising about healthy faith community cultures. And so – The question I can understand people being like, I'm not so sure that I'm committed to that goal for my kid. But what I find fascinating is that the outcome is a type of approach that would not be rigidly prescriptive or controlling of a young person. It would be about putting them in a really warm and caring um, environment where their voice mattered and their contribution was seen as important. There is something in all of this where a parent is going to need to pick a strategy they'd feel comfortable with knowing they can't control an outcome. I was grateful that part of what the Fuller Youth Institute 
data showed was a certain version of a culture that many of us would think that feels good. That yeah. I would want that, even if the beliefs on the other side landed in you know a, a range of places. That experience for my kid doesn't sound bad. Doesn't sound damaging. Doesn't sound you know that that's that's a big piece. I think. Yeah, I mean, you could imagine a world where the Fuller folks, you guys, do some rigorous research. And what you find is that indoctrination really works. You know, right. Some, right, right, like, right. That could be the case. It's kind of yeah. cool that it's not the case. Right. One of the other things that was happening around the same time period is Christian Smith's work was coming out of University of Notre Dame. It's in the book Soul Searching. And his was unique in terms of being very large sample, three, four thousand teens, and being across a variety of religious traditions. So not exclusively Protestant Christians. Cool. And he was just trying to answer the question, what do teens believe? And so we did a lot of long form interview style for that. And he was most known along with his colleagues for helping coin and popularize the phrase moralistic therapeutic deism. That most young people's religious sensibility was that you should be a good person, that religion should make you happy, that the version of God they had in their mind sort of lives far off, and their basic purpose as a God is to have crisis prevention and happiness provision. What was helpful in particular for me within that coming out was that that sort of stood in contrast to a lot of what was happening with Florida Youth Institute. Our kids believed the same things. Our youth group kids in our study very much echoed the students that they had surveyed as well. But there's a part of me that's very aware that I don't want my kids doing religion for that purpose. I think it's exhausting and discouraging and doesn't hold up to the challenges of the world. And so Mm. it's, I found it very clarifying, not in a, let's all freak out that this isn't the Christian gospel, although that's true. Yeah. But clarifying in like, this would be exhausting to be 15 and think that this is what your religious life is about. Hmm. And at the same time, here was Fuller on the other side saying the world we would invite young people into that could nurture healthy faith would not reinforce that message. Yeah. Um, the thing, the things that are bubbling up are kids that are indeed doing something different than this version. Yeah. Of, you know, that, that he's sort of observing. So those two things were really nice companions. I think the good news for patrons of this show, here's my big ad, is that Meredith, you have already agreed to do a second episode with me coming up soon here. It'll it'll release shortly after this, where we're just going to talk through those five tenets of moralistic therapeutic deism and kind of break down each of them and where you see stuff that doesn't bother you and stuff that bothers you kick around some of the theological implications and parenting implications. So I'm really excited for that conversation. Okay. So what's the, you said there were four, what's third? Well, so third and four sort of go together, which one is um, Vern Bengston is the one researcher. And then along with him sort of is a companion thing from the search Institute on what was called family assets. Bengston's big thing was family warmth is one of the key relational elements for faith transmission. Now, again, you have the question of like, do I want to pass along my faith? But I think even if you take that in a broad sense of, do I want my child to have an experience of our family as Mm -hmm. valuing a faith tradition or religious tradition? And what kind of experience would that be? His thing was when your family fundamentally likes each other, 
that is going to help your kid have a sense of openness to the religious tradition that you are a part of or the religious postures that you hold. So that would be true no matter what it is. If your posture as a family is we want to be spiritually curious, your kid is far more likely to also think that curiosity is a great thing to bring to their spiritual life if they like you. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's it's kind of a psychological no-brainer, right? Like, if you have a good relationship with your family and your family exhibits virtue A or value A, like you will share value A. And if you have a shitty relationship with your family and they show value A, you'd be like, no, thank you. I'll take value not A, you know? Exactly. And when you have the Dobson and company camp, basically saying that what you do as a family is not built on your interpersonal strength as a family unit, but rather the capital T truth. Yes, the content. About, right. Yes, sin, depravity, doctrine, whatever. Yes. Then Dobson saying it doesn't matter if your family feels miserable, you're doing the right thing. It doesn't matter if your kid is fighting you tooth and nail, you're standing on the truth. And Bangston and company are coming along saying the type of family you're cultivating is a really key piece of this faith thing. They're not separate. And so yeah. just to then similarly, they had this, this massive list of assets a family could have in sort of a more is more context. And they were just looking at a wide demographic of families as far as having access to cultivating those attributes, where you might see pockets of them. But they especially then sort of had great companion ideas about how any one family might cultivate that warmth. And their research helped point to the fact that families can do that in a lot of right ways. And so that asset list was a really helpful tool in not only is warmth a key thing, but how your family gets to warmth gets to be expressed through your own context, your culture, your ethnic heritage, your resources. And that's so key because again, the old model is very white and it's very affluent. Yeah. And so if you can only have good faith for your kids when you can afford to spend X hundreds of dollars a year on a certain amount of books and camp experiences and so on, it becomes very uh, unattainable. And I think they were just a really helpful pushback on that. Yeah. There's a economic lens there that you can train on it like you just did. I think there's also like a pluralism lens that saying something like that, that these healthy family cultures and this uh, collection of family assets can be compiled in multiple ethnic and cultural ways would brush very harshly against some of the kind of exclusivist tendencies of, of white Protestantism, right? That, that like, Oh, no, no, no. All those other cultures, especially if they're attached to other religions or other spiritual practices, those might literally be carrying demons. So we're going <laughs> to we're going to steer very clear away from anything that's not essentially a sort of white Christian American culture that we feel comfortable with. Absolutely. This morning, actually, it was kind of convenient scrolling through Instagram. I saw a post of yours that I think makes a good organizational tool for kind of talking about your work as a whole and the kind of, and I, I've also embedded a bunch of listener questions that I got back in the summertime that seemed to apply. So you had a post like four reminders as you start your week. And I don't know if these are like the four pillars of your work or anything like that, but they, they cover a lot. I'd like you to read those four in your words briefly, and then we'll start going through each of them. Absolutely. So first, you are connecting your good kid to the God who made them so. Second, knowing God is greater than acting good. 
Third, obedience training is for puppies, not children. And fourth, your own faith questions are wonderful and worthy. Nothing needs to be solved today. In fact, modeling how to search for instead of settle for answers is faith building for your kids. Oh, I think people are getting some goosebumps, some listeners right now. Let's start with number one. You are connecting your good kid to the God that made them good. They are beloved image bearers, and so are you. The first thing I thought of was the way that Jesus interacts with children in the stories that we have in the Gospels. The thing I didn't know until not too long ago was the practice that children were often unnamed until a certain age. Hmm. They were its. Some of that is probably about mortality rates. I was just going to say, yeah. And yet there's something about then this idea that welcoming children, they're not regarded culturally the way that our culture sees children, where we've centered our whole lives around them, perhaps in unhealthy ways at times too. But even just that there's sort of a need to hold kids at arm's length because you're just not sure what's going to happen. And Jesus pulling them in is so significant. And I think just even the idea that Jesus is highly interruptible, always by people from the margins. Mm. And we don't often think about kids as marginalized. And yet we are still in a culture that I would argue marginalizes young people. I think that our ways in which we raise them commodify them and put them on tracks to build resumes and so on and so forth in ways that it's like, oh, no, no, there's a whole thing of, of an image-bearing child that we're trying to nurture far beyond their faith, just as, as people. Mm. Jesus seems to even sometimes think of children's faith as paradigmatic, as like, yeah. in a sense, better than the type yeah. of faith he sees from adults, yeah. the way we have it in the text. Growing up evangelical, that never really connected. Hmm. What has connected it for me a little bit is, I think you're familiar with the work of of Lisa Miller at Columbia. And, you know, she has a book called The Spiritual Child. She also has a book about adult spirituality called The Awakened Brain. And one of her ideas is that basically kids have a built-in capacity for spirituality. And uh, Justin Barrett, the um, cognitive psychologist, would also say in his book, Born Believers, he talks about all these natural capacities that people are born with. This is the cognitive science of religion literature. And so that's an interesting lens for thinking about Jesus calling that a paradigm of sorts, whereas I was raised primarily to think that like, okay, as soon as possible, you need to get these kids to accept Christ because once they reach the age of accountability, they are destined for hell if they don't. And those are really different ways of of thinking about it, right? (laughs) Wildly different. What I think counters this idea is if you have an image-bearing beloved child, then it only makes sense that we see in their brains and in their bodies a reflection of that reality. Hmm. I think about when I used to teach the Easter story to two-year-olds when I was the curriculum director of a megachurch. And when you come to them to say, your friend Jesus is alive, their acceptance of that, their excitement about this idea that this person who loves me and wants to be my friend is here and, and yes. But to your point, there's a whole version that says like, oh, that's not true. Two is too young to know that they are sinners and therefore they can't accept Jesus as the one who saved them. 
versus the version that says two is not too young. They are wired to love their friend Jesus and thrilled to know he's alive and with them. And they get to celebrate that, right? But there's definitely, I mean, I've never gotten more pushback in the world of the internet than when I said on Easter that we shouldn't say Jesus died for your sins because I said, you know, we should talk about how Jesus is alive, which would be the version of if you're going to do the Christian thing, it's kind of predicated on that idea. (laughs) But a lot of that comes back to what we think of who children are. You can't make them too good. You can't say that they're all right. You can't say that they live in a state of belovedness. Right. Well, if I were to use the term what we think children are, I would be describing that sort of psychologically. But I think what you mean by it is what I would say is it. what it comes down to is the theology and sort of the stakes inherent in the different theological visions. And if the stakes are eternal hell that is deserved the moment that they come of age— to make moral choices or whatever, well, then those stakes are going to have a lot to say about what you should do. And if those stakes are accurate, which almost no one who listens to this show still believes that those are the accurate stakes, if they are, then fucking beat your kids, whatever you got to do to get them into heaven, and they'll thank you for it in the afterlife. But once those, well, and there's still a question of, well, what works better, the stick or, you know, honey, right? Like the carrot or the stick. And actually the Fuller Institute data would say, hey, here's how you get kids that their faith sticks around, right? you know, and it's not through this intimidation and fear and guilt and dread and all that stuff. No, not at all. I am not reformed. I don't operate from a a place of um, responding to reformed theology, but goodness, nothing has done more damage to trying to imagine how you might practice a vibrant Christian faith with your children than the pillars of reformed theology. That everything is having to react and respond to them, whether you want to or not, because they become so pervasive. And even things like, well, no, those two-year-olds, their sin nature is responsible for their disobedience and you need to correct. They are growing. Two-year-olds, all human two-year-olds are being two. And there's something about Jesus entering humanity and embodying the fullness of humanity that I think helps correct the idea that like maybe God gets what it is to be human. Yeah. And maybe our kids just get to be human and God calls humanity good. One of the big lines in evangelical preaching is, you know, some people aren't so sure about original sin, but I hung out with these toddlers and they were selfish. And so therefore humans are by nature selfish. And the language I would now use is that that is completely ignoring a developmental lens of like how a human becomes a human, that that is a phase that we go to. But if you look at 30 year olds, most of them are not selfish in the same way that three year olds are. Is that because something has changed in their sin nature? That's an insane answer. <laughs> yes. Yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. So, I, and that, again, that's the anti-science thing. So we're not yes. going to turn to developmental psychology uh, or neurobiology or any of that stuff. We're going to just assume that our reading yeah. of the text and our worldview explains everything. hundred percent. Let's take a quick break and then we're going to talk about number two. All right. Number two. Knowing God is better than acting good. You are helping your child get to know God bit by bit. We reject a gospel of sin management. What is sin management, Meredith? This is not my phrase. This comes from Dallas Willard. 
that God wants us to be more good and less bad, that the purpose of religiosity is to manage our goodness and badness in ways that would appease the divine, who is primarily measuring and monitoring our goodness and our badness. We can build lists of what those good things should be. We can build lists of what is on the bad things we should not do. And then we work on making sure our lists are properly adhered to. And somewhere in all of that, there's a Christian version that would insert Jesus as coming in to clarify the precise lists of good and bad in his teaching, (laughs) (laughs) right? And then pass them on to us and, and commission his disciples to carry said lists. What we really do, even in that version, is we minimize Jesus's lists and we take Paul's lists of what is good and bad, right? That's how we actually do it. Right, right. And then we read Paul's list poorly so that I think even Paul himself would be like, no, (laughs) y'all, not that. Right. So sin management, it's a companion to the moralistic therapeutic deism stuff that we'll deep dive into for later. It's the version that we often give kids because it's concrete. You can see it. You can tell kids to change their behavior and then praise them if they do. You can chastise kids for set, you know, supposed bad behavior and, you know, watch them respond to that idea. And there's something about the concrete that I think has been very alluring to parents as far as why we especially raise kids in a sin management culture. And then we think they will grow through it usually around the teen years, right? There's a lot of rhetoric around so-called owning your own faith. That's when we just add quiet times to the list. (laughs) And we think that they'll maybe like shed that sin management or they'll, or they'll just come to love Jesus so much that they won't mind the sin management. We just start kids off with that idea that everything is the do and don't. So this is interesting. And this is a thread that kind of runs through all of your work and, and the larger topic as a whole, which is, it seems like we could figure out two categories of of negative behaviors for our children. There's a little discernment as to where you draw the line, but one category is the kind of stuff that most people would agree on. So we don't want our children or teenagers engaging in risky sexual behavior when they're too young. You know, we don't want them having unprotected sex. We don't want them doing hard drugs. We probably don't want them doing any drugs until their mid 20s because of the <laughs> neurological, you know, consequences, um, you know, drinking and peer groups that are sort of patently dangerous, right? So there are certain yeah. things That everyone agrees on. And then there's like another category of like sin management type behaviors, which is much more open to interpretation for all of it. You have a natural anxiety as a parent that you, you don't want your child to be harmed. Right. One way of thinking about this is that the bad parenting advice in that sort of control and obedience based paradigm, it takes the natural anxiety and fear of the obvious bads and sort of weaponizes it against the less obvious bads. Like, is that, do you think of it that way? I do. I think there's sort of this idea that it's a slippery slope. Yeah. You know, there's this sense that then you have to be really afraid of every small mistake because what if it leads to the big stuff? And then I think it often tempts us to use God or use the Bible to help mitigate that fear. Because it's true. We genuinely hope our kids make wise and healthy choices for themselves and for the people they're in relationship to. And it's true that being part of a faith would have an influence on how we would see wise and healthy choices. But 
what has to be parsed out as parents is that what is not true is that God separates themselves from us if we make all the wrong choices, mm. right? What is not true is that there's a place that's called too far gone right? for God. And that is the piece that an overemphasis on the choices and the behavior, we often don't realize how much that gets in the way of our kids knowing who God is and what God is like in the event that they do everything wrong. We just sort of assume that like, well, you know, God's God. And so kids are going to just realize that God deserves whatever respect or glory or whatever. And then what actually happens, this was a big thing in the Fuller Youth Institute stuff. What actually happens is kids do the stuff they know they shouldn't do. And after that, they don't think God likes them anymore. Hmm. Like generically, God kind of loves them. That's God's job. But like also God like doesn't really like them. And they're just stuck because they don't have a a religious connection to the being that they believe they're invited to know. They only had the list that they were supposed to manage. Yeah. Even if we care about wise and healthy choices, the, the path to those choices is always relationship with people that love us towards good, healthy, wise, whole things. So this seems like a good time to bring in your concept uh, from our conversation this summer of family faith culture. This yeah. is a, a term that you like to use. What does that term mean? I think that's the part we can influence most as parents. We get to build the family faith culture. We don't get to control the outcomes of what our kids will or won't believe. We don't get to control the choices they will or won't make, even though we probably have opinions and hopes about those. <laughs> right. But we do get to control the way our family feels. And so that can be, do we participate in a faith community? And how formal or informal is that? Do we participate in justice? And how do we talk about before, during, and after that justice participation and that experience? What do we do with our money? And how do we talk about the way our money is used? And how do we invite our kids to understand where our money goes? Do we read sacred texts or participate in prayer? And how does that sound or feel? How often do we do it? And so all of these pieces, and then that can be more subtle. How does our family feel when it comes to having doubt or saying things are weird or not knowing? How much do we care about certainty versus mystery? You as the adults get to sort of set the tone around that. How we invite our kids to see sacred text. How much do does a kid see it as literal versus poetic? That's going to often come from the influence of adults. So it's kind of that composite picture that you get to set a tone for, and then your kid's sort of raised in it and has their experience in within that, that piece. So that's the part we get to have the most influence on. Whenever we talk about parents having the most influence on their kid's faith, which has been hanging around since Barna said it with their survey stuff in the 90s, that was taken to mean that parents could decide what their kids believed. That's not what they can do. Parents can decide how it feels. Right. So- there are some listener questions about church, and this seems like a good place to ask them. Do we know the benefits of church specifically? I think that means church as opposed to other forms of community like Boy Scouts or sports leagues or whatever. Is the research clear on that stuff? There would be a shared value in any type of intergenerational community in terms of a child being known and supported by more than simply the adults that are raising them. That's always good. So you get that with a coach or a scout leader, maybe, or something like that. Yes. 
you know, you, you can get, you probably don't get a third generation of like grandparents. Sports leagues don't have also third generation boosters that come to the games. Like you, maybe your grandparents will come to your right. game. Right. 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 What is limited when you move into things like clubs and athletics would be the space for a young person to bring serious questions about spirituality to an adult and think that that adult could be helpful to them, mainly because it's unlikely to come up. And so it is always good for young people to have more than the adults who are raising them, that they could bring a serious question with spiritual implications and hear and dialogue. And faith communities are more likely to invite a kid to realize, oh, I could tell, I could ask so-and-so about that. I can see what so-and-so has to say. There are more domains of questions that are acceptable or it would make sense to bring another adult in to speak into it. And therefore that is strengthening that relationship with additional adults that are not my parents. Right. And faith communities tend to have containers wherein the relationship between the young person and the adult is brokered, hopefully with health and respectable boundaries for the young person. But a healthy church, you'd have a Sunday school leader or youth group leader or, you know, and they'd have a background check and, you know, all this kind of thing, right? Those kinds of things. And again, many churches also then have practices related to the stories they tell. That can be huge for kids to hear stories of people working out what it looks like to trust a God Hmm. that they are hearing adults talk about what's hard about that. What's rewarding about that, that they're hearing, especially uncurated stories, right? So I've been in churches that do a lot of curation around this. Oh yeah. That's less helpful, but more authentic stories. So a great example that came to mind was that we were part of a church at one point where we had some parents getting kind of all uppity about how they felt like the way the youth group was talking about sex was not rigid enough because of all the weirdness that Christians do around sex. Of course they did. Yes. At which point the pastor was saying, look, a whole bunch of these kids are having sex. So do you want me to, in this youth group, have a whole bunch of other 20-year-olds from the Christian college down the block as their primary, secondary influence? Or do you parents want to come on in and you know what I could find? I could find a real adult person who had to make the choice to have an abortion who would tell their story to these teens about what that experience was like, why that was challenging, what they thought in the meantime, how they worked that out, how they found God meeting them in love in that very challenging choice. Who do you want walking with these teenagers right now? The person who's an adult who walked through some stuff, or do you just want me to get all the 20-year-olds who will parrot the don't have sex line, even though they don't know what they're talking about? Yeah. I had an example of this, and I've told it before, but I think it's been a while. In our youth group in high school, our high school director brought her friend in to share that she was going through a dark night of the soul, basically a significant period of doubt, and it had not finished She was still in it. It was ongoing. There was no, it felt so weird that it didn't resolve within the talk. And Uh I have never forgotten it. And I'm sure it gave me a permission structure years before I needed one for sort of questioning a bunch of that stuff and and ending up where I am now. And I I just think, wow, like that was so wise to have done that, you know? Yeah. The permission structure before you need it. That is what a faith community can really offer is it puts 
things sort of in the bank that can be drawn upon later from ideally adults who are aware, like this comes with living in this world. Well, and before you need it is such a great developmental lens, right? Because they will need different things. They're going to need it later when their brain is at a different stage than it's at right now. And so it does make sense, especially with children and adolescents, to sort of bank some of those things for later in a way that it's not as sensible for a 40-year-old. A 40-year-old, you tell them, hey, dude, here's what you need to know right now. But you don't tell a 15-year-old you don't wait till they're 25. You start teaching them at 15, right? So that when they get there, oh, they can access this stuff. Yeah. Another listener question is related. Is there a way to replicate the community aspect of being in a church setting for kids outside of a church? Certainly. It seems that some of the sort of survey style stuff that's coming out from Pew and others is pointing to how much more common this is in general for families that being part of formal faith structures, churches that meet on campuses and such is certainly declining. And so it's going to be more and more relevant to people. And I think that the key is to think about opportunities for consistent intergenerational relationship. So frequency would be flexible, but consistency would be key Mm -hmm. of how you begin to be known by uh, others that are older and younger than you. I think that, The idea that it would be intentional in some way would help create an important replicable piece of all of this that, you know, we have friends over for all kinds of reasons all the time. But if you're wanting to think about why faith communities help young people, you'd want to think about it being maybe a little more intentional, maybe a little more formal than, hey, we have friends over and they happen to be part of our faith culture, broadly speaking, too. Right. I think that you have a wide variety of actual practices that could fill in. So you say, okay, we're going to get some humans together. We're going to do something. That something could be much more varied than what you might typically think of as being part of church, where often it's songs and a talking head. So in that way, you don't need to worry about replicating those pieces. You can draw on so much more. Right. I think one of the upsides of considering how you might be doing it yourself is the role the young people can play as participants, because a lot of the spaces that we're in, one, everyone's an audience member often, and two, kids are especially not expected to speak up, right. bring things, do things. And Unless so, they play an, an instrument, you could put them in the worship band. <laughs> you can put them in the band, yeah. Get some free labor, yeah. I do want to say really quick. I know from the download numbers that the episode I did with Greg Kutsona called Church is Good for You, I think a lot of people did not want to listen to that episode. (laughs) (laughs) And I understand that. However, I would recommend if you're interested in this topic, go back and listen to that episode and, and, you know, take it with whatever grain of salt you want and think about how some of those lessons might be applied in a non-church setting. But I don't think we should just ignore that evidence or try and explain it away because we've had a bad church experience or even an abusive church experience. Two things can be true at the same time, that church really hurt you or me, and that for the average person, church is really quite helpful. Uh, and I think that those are, are both true and the evidence is, is pretty strong. So I just, uh, that'll be in the show notes as well. Number three, obedience training is for puppies, not children. Around here, we operate from a trust-based paradigm. Now, I want to ask you what you mean by obedience training, because here is 
where there's, in my mind, a little bit of friction with sort of the psychological consensus, which is when you are getting trained in working, for instance, with children, to a lesser degree adolescents as they get older, but younger children, preteens, the kind of takeaway is behaviorism that is, you know, Pavlov's dog, conditioned responses, basic like classical conditioning, extinction behavior, you know, all that kind of stuff works best with animals and children. And then as humans get older, their brains get more complex and that real basic reward punishment stuff works less. What I want to make sure, and it's fine if we disagree, is that you're not saying that those mechanisms aren't effective because sometimes those mechanisms are effective, but you could do them out of a place of love and, and whatever, right? Like that's the only little check I got in reading this. Yes. So I agree. And what I think matters is coming from the, what are we doing with faith question? You have the fact that we're trying to help our kids become whole humans in the world, which includes moral humans. So there is a reality of helping our kids not only learn to function, but also to be moral, which I think is part of a faith journey in the end. What I get concerned about is when we draw from religious spaces and turn it into contractual moralism, that this learning that we're doing, that this behaviorism that we're practicing to help our kids learn gets this added layer put on it that they are worried that their mistake means that they've lost the approval of someone they love and care very much about, whether that's their parent or God. And so to me, the key with obedience training is how much in the past you've seen this link between parenting a young child to become a good whole human and faith and this idea that there's somehow Christian parenting right? That your your child's talk back is not just meant to be addressed because we want to speak respectfully. It's a sign of their sin and they need to be obedient because you're the parent. Children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. There's a religiosity version of obedience training that I think is actually very unhelpful to the more grounded work of like, let's practice being a three-year-old with other three-year-olds in ways that will not leave everybody crying, <laughs> which right. does mean I'm going to, I'm going to address things like hitting or yanking things from one another. And we're just going to work that out. So I'm in a child and adolescent psych class right now. I happen to be in one. And so I've gone through now two trainings of, of working with problematic behaviors of, of children and teenagers. And in these evidence-based models, you do withhold your attention because children crave their parents' attention when they are not doing what you'd like. But then when they do do what you'd like, you return your attention, you label your praise for them, you you sort of lavish them with love. And I think that the cumulative effect of that from as what it seems to me is like the the child does not walk away from that going, "Oh, it's so random when my parent will approve or love me." that I can't even anticipate it. It's like, no, like I am loved and there is behavior that is acceptable and behavior that's not acceptable. And then, you know, the younger they are, the more that kind of straight up attention works. And as they get older, it becomes more complicated and, and all of that. But I think that, yeah, you can separate out the fact that, especially for younger children, the mechanism of reward and punishment, you know, timeouts and, 
and rewarding with lavished attention and engagement and enjoyment in play and stuff like that, that that is separable from, you know, like that's, that is just simply what tool works to accomplish a certain end. What end are you trying to accomplish? That is where these paths can, can really diverge in my mind. Yes. And I think that just isolating the question of how might I help a young child get to know God One of the helpful pieces is when I have a behavior that needs to be coached or addressed, that actually is not the time to bring God into it. I like that. I just need to be with my kid to help them learn about that. Yeah. And I think that there's sort of parallel worlds where we're working on behaviors and becoming and we're getting to know God. And over time, the space between those two parallel conversations probably starts to close because a child grows and is developmentally more able to see the ways in which their faith and their choices inform one another. But the often uh, taught rhyme to three-year-olds that Jesus loves me when I'm good, when I do the things I should, Jesus loves me when I'm bad, but it makes him very sad. That has no place in how a young child learns to behave appropriately in their family or in a social setting. They just need to be taught what it is to be a good friend, to be kind, to be all the things we need to learn. Jesus's opinion of their behavior is not relevant in that moment. But you understand how that gospel of sin management, if that is your probably unseen primary lens through which you view the entire world and human experience, then you would assume that it does need to be based in Jesus's opinion because that's the whole game. Right. Right. Well, and you would assume that is Jesus and Jesus's opinion. And what if Jesus's opinion of that child is, oh, look at you grow. Right. Look at you go. What if Jesus's opinion of a hard situation that we're trying to parent through is compassion? Wow. That's hard to walk through. Like, what if we are fundamentally wrong about Jesus's opinion about the hard parts of raising children and how he sees us as we work through that stuff? Because we've assumed this sin management lens. In the month of January, I'm actually putting out three patron-exclusive episodes because I think I only got to one, either in December or November. Uh, Holidays and all that stuff just kind of tripped me up, so... You guys are getting three this month, and the most recent one is a new Generation Gap Culture Hour with producer Josh and Tony Jones. We talk a little bit about uh, a question that Josh has around a conversation with his dad about he and his siblings losing faith. And before we do that, we talk about these male kind of podcasters and, and nutrition and fitness, I guess gurus is the wrong word, but kind of all that sort of self-improvement body health culture, which is so massive uh, in online spaces for men, as well as we talk a little bit about the role of theology and how it relates to wider culture. And Tony gets into some of the work he did uh, on his dissertation. It's a really fun conversation, a lot of laughter this month. And man, I just love doing those with Josh and Tony. So Uh, If you're not a patron, you can hear that and all the previous Generation Gap Culture Hours by signing up, patreon.com slash dancoke. It's five bucks a month, and it comes with access to the patron-only Facebook group and at least two exclusive episodes per month, except when I occasionally mess up, but I try and make it up to you when that happens. All right, back to my conversation with Meredith. 
So when I talk about a trust-based paradigm, I am meaning that as the adults in a kid's life, we are trying to give them time, space, and opportunities to get to know God so they can discover and feel out that God can be trusted. And probably, especially for your community, there's probably an if God can be trusted Mm -hmm. that we have to be willing to do. But our faith goals are not God is certain, God wants you to obey, I as the parent will teach you, child, what obedience looks like, sounds like, and feels like. You will do those things because you want my approval and because you mirror me developmentally, and then you will grow up and just automatically see the benefit of this obedient life. I think that is the obedience training paradigm when it comes to faith that has been sort of passed along. I think a trust-based paradigm is I am an adult who is here to help you as you get to know God. And we're going to give you all the time you need for that. We're going to welcome every question you have about that. I'm not trying to dictate that to you. I'm trying to invite you in to experience that with me so that you can see how it holds up. Fundamentally, that comes from my own theological conviction that God cares far more about us practicing trust than about any particular behavior that does or doesn't come out of us. That's also a good bridge into number four, which is about our faith questions as parents, Yeah, right? And and I'm seeing... So, so your point is, uh, your fourth, your fourth thought for the week is your own faith questions are wonderful and worthy. Nothing needs to be solved today. In fact, modeling how to search for instead of settle for answers is a faith building skill. And what I'm feeling as I listen to you sort of finish up that third point is that the way that you see it, there's a remarkable unity to the idea that as parents, we ought to be able to feel open that God is with us in our uncertainty. If God exists, God is certainly fine with that. And with the sort of long, messy process of coming to more settled conclusions or or patterns or habits of thought, and that is in a fundamental unity with what God thinks about our children and it's in a unity in terms of what, how we, as we can become comfortable with that, then we can model that, that they can become comfortable with that. And that is both beautiful and fucking opposite <laughs> of, what, <laughs> of like what everything I was sort of almost everything, not necessarily modeled. Cause I think my parents actually did model a fair bit of comfort with uncertainty, but in the larger evangelical culture, you know, certainly yeah. the, the big ministries that bring in a lot of money and, and have big names, it's the opposite of that, which is like, yeah. here are the rules, you show the yeah. rule, you know, rigidity and all that stuff. Yeah. And, you know, then you just do apologetics for all the adults and apologetics junior for all the children because it's just all real firm. Yeah. And keep keep that certainty in place. Yeah. Absolutely. And then there's nothing to do when life gets hard, but assume that either God is not pleased with you or God is not as good as you've been promised. And I don't feel like either of those conclusions is a great place to be. And I don't think either of those is true about life's hardships. There's something about needing to have space for the complexity of faith in our actual world and our actual lives. 
and what will sort of bubble up in the course of being a human person in the world and becoming more acquainted with the human experience around the world. I just can't help but wonder how much that certainty works really well when it comes from very secure, affluent contexts. Well, it might be tied to that affluence and and to certain sort of cultural comforts, uh, creature comforts, you know, stuff like that. It might be the fact that I have panic disorder that fueled this, but I remember getting these little glimpses of like, oh, what I'm really after here is a comfortable upper middle-class existence with no tragedy. Yeah. I really, I felt that. And, and like, that is first of all, antithetical to (laughs) any reading of Jesus. It is antithetical to any justice minded approach to the world that wants to take privilege seriously. And I want to, I do want to take my privilege seriously. It's a balm for an anxious mind is what it is Mm -hmm. uh, to be pursuing that. And I think that people of faith, you know, that's a good thing to be really questioning if that's the kind of thing that we are signing up for and signing our children up for to think that they either must get or deserve or is best or whatever. And then if their job isn't as high paying as they'd like, or, you know, fill in all the possible ways that that, cause, cause most people can't reach that. Like I love when ta Coates talks about how, the white picket fence and the ice cream socials were paid for by the forced labor labor of black people. Like you don't get that shit for free and not everyone can just will themselves to an upper middle-class existence in the Highlands. Like, you know, so there are real issues there. Absolutely. And that is a, I think under discussed piece of how we are raising kids in faith, that if that part isn't interrogated and that assumption that God would want that for us and that God would hashtag bless that pursuit, that's going to complicate what it is to raise a kid to know God or to follow the Jesus story in real big ways. And yeah, (laughs) in real big ways. There's so so much there. I mean, yeah. Not least because you can't read the Gospels and maintain it. So you're going to have constant cognitive dissonance. But, you yes. know, and there's there's obviously a difference between, like, wanting your child to have a marketable skill in a capitalist society and the kind of um, free from adversity thing that I was sort of outlining, right? Right, I, I right. want Soren to, you know, make good choices about career development and and education and stuff like that. Here's a listener question. How do we inculcate a sense of mystery, a world bigger than ourselves for our kids? We slow down enough to have awe and wonder be part of what our kids get to experience. We put devices away and go outside and stare at stars and chase wild fireflies and wade in shallow water, we have to slow down enough to connect to tangible things that help draw out deep inner mystery too, especially for kids. It's often things they do in their body that go causes a sense of wow. And then you can sort of sit in that wow. Um, museum spaces often do this. And Play spaces often do this. The things they find their bodies trying and maybe even failing at, depending on their coordination. It's not just nature, but I do think it is about 
uh, unitasking for the sake of exploring a thought or an idea or being surprised or taught something new. I think watching space shuttle launches does this for kids. And there's a way you can watch that launch that can do this more that I think is about this attentiveness to like, let's just be amazed at what's going on for the next 10 minutes. And I pick that time frame because kids have short attention spans and that needs yeah. to be respected. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I'm wondering specifically about raising kids, because there's all these things we do with children. So if there is a violent situation in the home or at a friend's home, you know, we talk to our kids in a certain way that shields them from the facts and that is based in what we actually think is true in reality. So is there maybe like a period where the best thing is to say, okay, you know what? I don't feel personally sure. I don't feel like my own questions are wonderful and worthy, but I think that they probably are. So during this transitionary period, I'm going to teach my children that theirs are wonderful and worthy and mine and trust that five years from now, I will be more confident that my questions are wonderful and worthy. And in those intervening five years, I will have built up habits of parenting that might even convince me that my questions are wonderful and worthy as I see how wonderful their questions are. And I see them wrestling with these questions. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah, there's a practicing what we want to trust is true, even if that feels hard. Yeah. Right. One of my favorite questions with kids eight-ish and up is when you start to tell them God is, whatever that attribute might be, you can follow up with, is that easy or hard for you to believe and why? And just opening up for them the idea that I'm telling you something I think is true about God and you might think that is not true about God and we can hold that together. Like you're yeah. allowed to say hard. And when a child says hard, you don't say, okay, but actually it's the truth because yeah. of reason, reason, reason. Yeah. When a child tells you that it's hard, you say, yeah, it is hard. God is with you. Is that easier or hard for you to believe? It's hard. You're right. Cause you don't hear or see or feel God. Like you hear, see, and feel me with you right now. And that can be hard to believe. And then you could go over time exploring stories of scripture of people experiencing God's presence and trying to figure out if it actually was God or their bad lunch and yeah. wade into the challenge of that. We often think that kids express their doubts so that we can assure them in that very conversation. But I think there's an opening up that we can do of being like, yep, we are going to sit with the truth that it's hard to believe an invisible being is truly with us when we had that bad dream or whatever situation our kid will experience. Yeah. Speaking of, of hard things, here's another listener question. How do we talk with kids about sin, hell, and salvation? I'm going to assume this is coming from a place of someone who is no longer taking the party line on these issues. Mm -hmm. um, but like I'll throw in this wrinkle and what if grandma and grandpa are talking with them about sin, hell, and salvation along the old party lines? So you can answer e any version of that. Okay. I'll talk with what I think should be if we are continuing to be part of the, the broad Christian tradition in a Jesus-centered way. First to say, one of the resources I find very helpful in this is 
Lisa Sharon Harper's The Very Good Gospel. It's a relatively accessible little read and a huge part of where I think you can get to a better, healthier place is start with her and then figure out how it would sound for your kid. Okay. We'll have Josh put a link to that in the notes. And part of that is she does a wonderful job saying, when you talk about sin, it doesn't start with sin. It starts with God's dream. This happens in kids' resources all the time. We start in Genesis 3, but the story starts in Genesis 1, which is a story all by itself. Yeah. And so she talks about, and she's not the only one, how the vision of this garden has this holistic four-way goodness that it's not just humans being known and loving God, which we often narrow it to only that. It's humans being in a good relationship with one another in the way they treat each other. It's humans caring for creation well, and it's humans feeling right within themselves. And that four-way goodness would be God's dream for everybody. Everyone should get to be connected to God themselves, each other, and creation in, in right ways. So that has to be the starting point, that we really spend enough time with kids on God's dream. So that then when it's time to talk about sin, you have a jumping off point as the opposite, as the things that work against that, whether that is a personal thing or a systemic thing. Yeah, that's a nice way to be able to accommodate for both of those types of sin, individual and systemic, yeah. And so when kids understand what God would hope for, which the shorthand with kids I often say is God dreams of a world that works in a way that matches who God is. So if God is kind and gentle and compassionate and just and present, then what if the whole world felt like that? What if people treated each other that way? What if people knew that about themselves? How would that be? And that sin would be the stuff that works against that, that makes people think they're unloved and unlovable. When people forget that, they treat each other poorly, that makes people think that power is the best way to solve problems and so on and so forth. So then it's helpful, I think, with kids to be sure they understand the ways in which sin is an adjective. We often make it only a verb, and it's only their actions. Then you get Jesus showing up to reconnect people to the dream. The kingdom of God is the place where a community of people will live as if God is actually king, meaning they'll try to live in a way that matches who God is. Treat one another with radical generosity and be committed to the flourishing of their neighbors and give stuff up for the sake of others being well and so on and so forth. And because you watch a world worship power, of course, power is going to kill him. And I think we get so much into atonement theories of Good Friday, which is important, but often there's just the story. If the world works this way because people think power is going to solve stuff, of course, power is going to be reacting to Jesus that way. And kids can understand that. So those pieces, I think, become the core. And I just think you cannot spend too much time on what God hopes could be, because that's fundamentally what you're inviting them into. I mean, that's basically values for a Christian living in the world. I mean, that it's yeah. kind of the whole ball game in terms of what are we aiming toward? Yeah. So yeah, it's it seems impossible to spend too much time on that. Because that's the whole goal would be that your kid is coming to Jesus because this sounds lovely. Hmm. We've built whole systems where your kid is running away from hell because that sounds terrifying. Right. I don't think you need that at all in a kid's rubric. I don't think you need anything scary or shamey in their faith system. It's who they're coming to and why. Well, that's a great bridge to another listener question, which is 
Jesus in the Gospels is often confusing, not mm-hmm. winsome. He can sometimes seem mean. How do we give kids a chance to be drawn to Jesus? The first question would be, how are we reacquainting ourselves with the gospel writers and the way they'd like to invite us into this story and what we might not know because of the gap between our time and place and theirs? And just, are we reading the gospels well? Not because Jesus becomes, it all gets tidy, but like, we're always untangling the way we've been told these stories work and what what we've been told these stories mean. So sometimes we as parents need to start with that part, right? Like, okay, I'm just going to like let myself percolate. Yeah. But the tagline of your Instagram profile says something to the effect of you don't need a seminary (laughs) education to teach your kids about God. So you are in some sense standing in this gap for us here. You are replacing (laughs) our seminary education. (laughs) So, I mean, do you want to, do you want to give a few points about that? Of uh, Like, how do you contextualize Right. You know, there's Jesus calling the Samaritan woman a dog. There's right. a handful, you know, he's very mysterious in the Gospel of Mark. I mean, there's there, there's a few yeah. things like that, right? Okay, so so my actual answer for our kids is you skip hard stories. Okay. Brass tacks, skip them. You skip them. <laughs> you absolutely skip them. I think it's a great idea. Yeah. You skip them because if you do practically need a seminary degree to know what's going on with the Samaritan woman and why he says dog, and you need yeah. to at least go find N.T. writes the Bible for everyone, which is indeed a great version for those of us who don't do seminary but would like someone to hold our hand who comes from scholarship. Yeah. I love the Bible for everyone. But if that's what it takes for us as grownups, that's a real good sign that this is just not a story for our kids in the first place because the that. whatever's going on is not age accessible yet. So if I'm hanging on to questions and I need to go do a little deep dive, then clearly I don't need to invite my kid in yet because whatever the answer is, they probably can't get it yet. And I don't think that is sparing them from the truth of the Bible or whatever. No. It's being respectful of the fact that kids get to grow as kids. And there is plenty in scripture that is available to them to get them started. And so I am all for you skip and save so that when they're introduced they're able to take that story more on its own terms. Otherwise you're undoing a bunch of weird things that they're going to take away and you're going to have to like unlearn and you'd love to be able to teach the story well to them the first time. And that might mean you can't actually do it until they're 15. Yeah. I love that. So that's my actual cut and dry, but then yes, to the, what, how do you parse some of those kinds of stories? I do love the Bible for everyone series because it is popular level Mm -hmm. with, I think N.T. Wright is actually pretty great when he goes popular level. I think he does a pretty nice job at being, like, understandable. Yeah. And he is particularly a voice that – not the only, but a voice that is um, trying to help us notice what we might not know about the time and place of this stuff, which doesn't always solve everything by any means. But it often does raise, like, oh, that's interesting. That's new. Yes. He's very good at cultural context. My quibbles with him – tend to be for adult oriented things like, you know, I don't think he gets sexuality right. Um, Correct. I I don't on that as well. I think he a little bit simplifies the picture of the historical Jesus in his cultural context. However, none of that stuff is applicable. (laughs) I mean, the, the queer stuff is only applicable if your kid is queer. Um, And, and probably NT right is great up through their, you know, 
they start college or whatever. And the other stuff certainly does not apply until you are older. We don't need to litigate uh, Second Temple Judaism for them. So I co-sign the N.T. Wright thing, you know, maybe maybe just with an eye out in case your kid, you know, might be queer or whatever. So then keep an eye out for that. But he's not doing a lot of that analysis in those books anyway. Correct. This series is, I think, sort of straddling the line between insightful and almost devotional-ish. Yeah. It kind of focuses on core things, I think, that people might want to know without, yeah, needing to do this like full-blown biblical nerd thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I have time for one more question, and this one's mine. How do you think about when or whether to teach stories in the Bible that are likely non-historical? Right. So there's obvious ones like Jonah and probably in my mind, the creation narrative. But then further along, there's stuff like the Exodus and and other, you know, a lot of Old Testament stuff as like, well, this didn't happen, but it's a story that's important. Like, when do you how do you determine when to wade into that sort of it's a literary criticism kind of uh, lens with kids? Depending on the story. I think you can almost do certain stories from the get-go, like four and five, like creation can be a poem from age four that it's irrelevant to two and three-year-olds because they don't know anything about, but like you can start seeding the idea to kindergarten-ish age kids of like, so the poet comes in and wants us to discover what God is like and tells us that maybe it happened like this. Yeah. And so the idea that there is a writer, I think you can introduce early on. And this writer wants us to see something. This writer was wanting to share with their people something. The collaborative nature of scripture coming together, I think, becomes a helpful element that then can get built upon for kids understanding that that's going to mean we have genres. I would say that some of the other stories, like creation is just a very accessible story for all ages of children. Whereas like a Jonah, they probably need to be closer to eight, nine, 10, just to be in the genre and able to parse out ideas like, well, it seems like in this story, God is this way. Do we think God is really this way? If this writer was talking in their style to their people and they weren't thinking about us at all, why might they have said it? All those questions aren't available till they're older, but they can at that age start to think about that kind of stuff. What about being in the fish? Like that's the kind of thing that catches mm-hmm. a kid's imagination. But I remember at least, uh, at least yeah. at third grade yeah. already feeling some tension about like these non-science, right. you know, kind of things. Yeah. I have certainly watched groups of kids when you start from, it's like a parable, but in the old Testament, because Jesus's mm-hmm. parables would be the first place they can understand the idea that there's a true thing yes. Jesus would like these people to understand. But of course he made the story up. Yeah. Well, the Old Testament, it's like a parable only yeah. from the Old Testament. And so here's what we see. And here's, you know, water as a symbol in the Old Testament. It's an easy one for kids to begin to understand that it feels chaotic and unpredictable and scary. Yeah. And so we're going to see water show up a lot. And you can introduce some of those symbols to mm-hmm. them as well. And then... I think being able to tell kids, I think you can tell them, yeah, five, six, seven, the idea that the Bible's not a history book, like you'll experience in class, that mm-hmm. you're sure everything in it happened. It's not meant to be. The Bible's not a science book telling us how things happened. And giving them just those core pillars of like, what are we expecting with this book? You can do that real early. 
And then you add in what it is and how we approach it as they go on. But I think you can see the idea that we don't expect this book to be a literal thing from the jump. Yeah. Before you start working into the particular stories. Meredith, thank you so much for this absolutely fantastic conversation. I can't wait for people to hear it. Thank you for having me. It was delightful. We'll have a link to your Instagram. Anything else you want in the show notes? I have a podcast for kids where we explore Bible stories. So me and my own children, who are currently seven and nine, we do like a 10-minute Bible story where they interrupt as much as they want with questions and this is weird and what do we do? And we kind of practice how we explore stories when we're not trying to go tell kids to be good on the other side. Incredible. What's that called? That is called Ask Away. Ask Away. And then I have a book coming out next summer called Woven, Nurturing a Faith Your Kid Doesn't Have to Heal From. Wow. Heck yeah. That's the dream, right? Yeah. All right. Thanks for having me. 